Good morning. Good morning, Harbor Church. I'm so grateful to be with you uh, this morning. Unfortunately, my, my wife was serving at Waipahu, and my son loves the drums. I was talking to the drummer after, and uh, he would just be getting a kick out of this. So if we come back sometime, he's he just obsessed. Every day, YouTube, I got to watch drums. You know, that's how my son is, and he just absolutely loves it. Um, church, I'd like to call your attention to Joshua chapter 5 this morning. Joshua chapter 5. It's an amazing passage, an amazing place where Israel is at this time. Joshua chapter 5, please look with me to verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Ha'aralath. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised along the way. Now, when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On that day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with the sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for adversaries? And he said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Please pray with me. God, I just ask you would help me to preach Christ. I don't want to say anything that is not in accordance with your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit would convict hearts, encourage hearts, and point us all to Christ. What are these notes? What is this outline if not for the power of the Holy Spirit? 
Please help us as we all sit under your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, an article came out on Bleacher Report. It's kind of like a sports website entitled, The 10 Weirdest Pre-Game Rituals of All Time. I like reading these kind of articles. Uh, Jason Terry, he's an NBA player before, he used to sleep in his opposing team's shorts every night before the game. It's pretty weird. It's a lot of shorts you gotta buy, it's expensive. Um, NFL linebacker and now Hall of Famer, Brian Erlacher, used to eat exactly two Girl Scout cookies before every NFL game. I like the peanut butter ones. I, 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 don't, know which one, I don't know which one he was eating. Um, former LSU coach Les Miles used to take a little bite out of the home team's grass before every game. That's too far. That, I, can't, I can't be down with that one. This morning in Joshua 5, we see the nation of Israel on the doorsteps of the promised land. They are, as the passage says, on the plains of Jericho. It's game time. It's time to go. And this morning, we get to peek into the pregame preparations, if you will, of the nation of Israel before their miraculous overthrow of Jericho. And these pregame preparations that God brings the nation of Israel to are as relevant and as critical for every single one of us as it was for Joshua and for the nation of Israel. And so in our passage, there are really three things that God calls his people to in preparation. Three things that God calls his people to in preparation. Let's begin with number one. Number one, we see this in verses two through seven. God calls his people to consecration. God calls his people to consecration. Look at verse two. Look what he says in verse two. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel a second time. Out of all the toys and stuff animals my son has, and he kind of has, has a lot, there's an inner circle of stuffed animals that get the privilege of making it to his bed every night. There's a lion, there's a monkey, there's a kangaroo, and there's a dog. Out of the inner circle of the four that make it to his bed, only one get the privilege of making it to his arms as he sleeps, the dog. And I don't know how and I don't know why, but this dog was separated from the rest of the even inner circle stuffed animals. In other words, my son consecrated the dog. He separated the dog. To consecrate means to separate, to set apart. Like a toy dog is chosen to be separate from other toys and set apart for the use of being his comfort while he sleeps. So God's people are chosen to be separated from the world. And in the Old Testament times, especially in the book of Joshua, circumcision was the means by which God's people were to be separated or differentiated from the rest of the world. But there's a problem. There's a slight problem. And if you look at verse four, you'll see what I mean. Joshua says this, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way, as they came out of Egypt, had not yet been circumcised. 
every male that is currently in this passage that we're talking about has not yet been circumcised. We're not talking about eight-day-old uh, babies here. We're talking about grown men. They have not been circumcised yet, and God is effectively telling Joshua, I want you to get all of your men. I want you to get all of your soldiers, and I want you to circumcise them. I want you to, to consecrate them to me. Um, I work for the Navy as a civilian, and half the officers are women. It's, it's interesting. There's half women, half men. The boat I'm on, it's, it's basically half-half. It was not that way in the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, your entire military was strictly male. Strictly male. To circumcise the entire male population of Israel is to temporarily disable your military. It's to temporarily disable your military. With no military, you are essentially taking away not only your ability to attack other nations, you're taking away your ability from defending yourself. And remember where Israel is now. Joshua chapter 4, what happened? God miraculously split the Jordan. Israel crossed on dry land, and they're on this side of the Jordan now. What's this side of the Jordan? They're on the side with all their enemies. There's no river separating them from the rest of their enemies. And God says, I want you to consecrate all your men. I want you on this side of the Jordan to completely and utterly make yourself vulnerable. Genesis 34, there's an interesting story of this woman named Dinah, who's actually Israel's daughter. And Israel's daughter had two brothers. And Israel's daughter was assaulted by a man named Shechem. And the two brothers were so upset that their sister was assaulted, they came up with this deceitful plan. And they said, you know what, Shechem? Even though you assaulted my sister, I am going to let you marry her if you and the rest of all your brothers get circumcised. And Shechem, even though he assaulted her, I guess he loved her. He's like, you know what? Shoot. Yeah, let's all get circumcised so I can marry her. And let me read you the exact verse. Genesis 34, 25. This is what happened. Now, it came about on the third day when all Shechem's brothers were in pain. The scripture says that. When they were in pain. Two of Jacob's sons, which is Dinah's brothers, each took his sword, came upon the city, and killed every male. Joshua knew Genesis 34. The nation of Israel had the scrolls of papyrus, and they knew Genesis 34. They've read Genesis 34. Joshua knew that God's call to consecration was not simply ceremonial or traditional. God's call to consecration here would literally make them vulnerable to the attacks of the enemies that are now on this side of the Jordan. To consecrate themselves on this side of the Jordan is, humanly speaking, madness. Utter folly. They would effectively be telling all the surrounding nations, come, come get us. Just come get us. Man, I want you to think with your family, with your, with your kids, you have no strength to defend them. Place yourself in the shoes of these people where God is telling them, I want you to consecrate yourself to me. What that means for them, yet God's call to consecration stands. So the question then leads us to, why? God, why would you call your people to consecration, to circumcision, when you knew their obedience would result in nationwide vulnerability to attacks of the enemies around you? I want to offer you two reasons. There's certainly more, but I want to offer you two. 
Number one is this, and I think this is relevant, relevant for us as well. Number one, God was more concerned about his people's devotion to him than his people's actions for him. God was more interested about Israel's devotion to him than Israel's actions for him. Listen, ministry is a great privilege. It's a great privilege God has given us to be able to serve one another. Um, it's a joyful privilege, but sometimes some of us get Martha syndrome. You know what I'm saying? You remember that story with Martha and Mary? And, you know, Martha's over there doing the dishes, filling the dish rack, you know, doing all that stuff. And Jesus is sitting there, and Mary's just at his feet just being with Jesus. She just wants to be with him. She just wants to align her heart with him. Listen, we take great care to make sure our sanctuary's clean, our coffee tastes good, our music is on temple, our outreach is vibrant. We take great care to tend to all sorts of ministries, but it's oftentimes we forget to take great care of the heart. God was more interested in Israel's heart towards him, regardless of what side of the Jordan they were on. He was more interested in their heart towards him than them gaining a military advantage. God is more interested in your heart towards him than what you do for him. Because what you do for him comes from the heart. God was more concerned about Israel's devotions to him than Israel's actions for him. And secondly, God's call to consecration would require Israel to trust him. It would, it would force them. You have no choice. You can't defend yourself. You have no choice but to trust me, Israel. You can't do anything. Again, circumcision disabled, they're military, there's no way around it. You can't just circumcise half the men and then do the other half later. It's all or nothing. You're going to follow me or not, Israel. Israel would have to fully and completely relinquish control of their land, control of their goods, of their own bodies, of their house, of their families, and trust everything they have and everything they are to the Lord. They would have to trust him for that. God's call to consecration here forced Israel to trust for real life now, not just theoretically, not just theologically. They have to trust for real life that the Lord God is sovereign and all-powerful and faithful to his promises. How about you? Perhaps your theology is rock solid. You've read all the books. You've been, all, you've been to all the conferences you can quote the Puritans. You can do all those things. But when's the last time your life was shook and you had, you had nowhere to go but him? That's when you find out what your real theology is. That's when you find out what's really there. So the first thing God does in point number one, God calls his people to consecration. Number two, so God calls his people to consecration. Number two, God calls his people to remember. God calls his people to remember. I'm notorious for leaving my house and forgetting the keys. I don't know what it is. Like, I have to, like, I should probably think about that. Like, do I think my car works without keys? I don't know what's going on here that causes me to do that. This morning, I left, forgot the keys. I, I left again. I forgot my coffee. Like, it, I don't know what's, I got to work on that. But we're forgetful creatures, aren't we? How many times have you done your daily devotional in the morning? You, you read Genesis, you go to work, you forgot what you read in Genesis. We're just, we're forgetful 
creatures. It's so easy to get engulfed in the matters of life and forget the things of God. But look at verse 10, Joshua 5. He says, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. It's a common phrase we kind of use with one another, you know, the past is the past. You know, just leave the past in the past. You know, it's something that we use to kind of console one another. Don't remember your past, just move on. And there's certainly a sense in which that's biblical and that's right. Um, Genesis 31, God doesn't remember our sins anymore after we come to Christ. Uh, Philippians 3, Paul said he forgets what's behind him and reaches forward to what's ahead. So there's certainly a biblical aspect into forgetting and leaving your past in the past. But there's another sense in which remembering the past is absolutely critical to your success in the future. Let me read to you Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Deuteronomy 8, 11. God says this, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you've eaten and you are satisfied and you've built good houses and you've lived in them and when your herds and your flocks are multiplying and your silver and your gold are multiplying and then you have everything you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When things are good and things are going well, it is so easy for us as humans, as sinners to forget where we came from. Um, I've trained apprentices at the shipyard who, like me, didn't know their left hand from their right hand. I mean, I, this is embarrassing. I admitted the first, to the first service, I'll admit it to you again. My first day at work, I didn't know how to use a ratchet. I was like, does it go this way, that way? What is the clicking sound? I, it was bad. It was really bad. I didn't know anything. Um, and a lot of guys that I trained were the same way. But guess what happens? Six months later, newer apprentices come in. And these guys who didn't know anything six months ago start talking, talking harshly to them, start acting like they know everything, start acting pompously to the newer apprentices. They forgot who they were. They forgot six months ago, I didn't know how to use this thing. The same thing can happen with Christians. You forgot who you were. You forgot what God brought you out of. We start judging each other. We start judging other people. And you forgot you were a desperate beggar before the throne of Christ. Now, it's in our passage in particular, verse 10, God calls his people to remember, but in particular, in verse 10, he calls them to remember the Passover. He calls them to remember the Passover. It's so, it's so easy to just read over this and say, oh, okay, remember the Passover, observe the Passover, and completely forget the reality that the Passover was one of the most tragic, one of the most sobering things that ever happened in all of Scripture. If you remember back in Exodus, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they would not let God's people go. Moses said, God, please, uh, Moses would go to Pharaoh, let God's people go, let them go, and he would not let them go, not let them go. So God would send plague after plague after plague, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and finally God had enough, and he sent the final plague. Let me read to you Exodus 12, verse 12. This is what God is going to do. He said, I will go through the land of Egypt on one night, and I will strike down all the firstborn children in the land of Egypt both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments because I am the Lord. God in his holiness and his justice is going to execute judgment on Pharaoh by striking 
all the firstborn children in Egypt, but there's one exception that he gives in verse 13 of Exodus 12. The blood of a lamb shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over your house, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Just imagine being an Israelite in Egypt the morning after the actual Passover. Just picture yourself, you're in Egypt, you're enslaved by the Egyptians, God sweeps through the night before and kills every single firstborn in the entire land of Egypt, but the only reason, the only reason your child wasn't executed last night was because you sprinkled lamb's blood on your doorpost. God saw the blood on the doorpost of your house and passed over your house and didn't take out your son. That is the only reason to remember the Passover in Joshua's time was to remember blood. They celebrated it, but the heart of the Passover was the blood of that lamb that was sprinkled on your doorpost. The blood of that lamb was literally your refuge, was literally physically the reason your son is still breathing the next morning. And in the New Testament, we are all New Testament believers. In the New Testament, we learn that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs never actually forgave sin. The blood of the lamb on their doorpost was effectual insofar that it was a pointer to the true lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world in John chapter 1, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our final point. God calls us to consecration God calls us to remember. And lastly, number three, God calls his people to his son. God calls his people to his son. Look at verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no. I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. In these three verses, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, but not fully plumb its depths, but suffice it here, I want to just divide it by asking two questions. Number one, who is this commander? Who is the commander of the Lord's army? And number two, why is the commander of the Lord's army here? Who is he and why is he here? So firstly then, who is the commander of the Lord's army? Look at verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. First thing to note here, this was a man. This was a man. So much so that Joshua describes this person as a man and not a heavenly being. This is a man. 
There are other instances when people would see an angel and instant terror would fall upon them. They would just fall to the ground and just wish to die because it's so frightening, the, the, the picture of an angel, but not here. Joshua describes this person with a sword drawn in his head as a man. It's an interesting thing to look at. Look at verse 14. He says, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And look what Joshua did. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. Upon hearing who this man was, upon hearing him speak, he fell down and worshipped this man. There are many places in Scripture, Revelation 22, Acts 14, where people would try to uh, worship angels or worship apostles, and every time, indiscriminately, they would say, get off the ground. Don't worship me. I'm an apostle. I'm an angel. Get off the ground. What are you doing? I'm a fellow servant with you. But not here. It's a profound heresy for someone to worship you and you allow it. But look look what happens here. Not only does the man not correct Joshua, look what he says in verse 15. He says, Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Not only does he not correct him, he doubles down. He says, yes, Joshua, you're right to worship me, but not only that, you don't even realize how holy I really am. Get your sandals off. You can't be in my presence. I am so holy This is the exact same wording the Lord God told Moses at the burning bush when he called Moses to to go and, and save his people out of the land of Egypt. He says, take your sandals off, Moses. You are standing on holy ground, God at the burning bush. The commander of the Lord's army borrows the same wording here, and he says, take off your sandals. Only God is so perfectly and unimaginably holy that sandals can't be in his presence. you got to take them off. The book of Isaiah in chapter 6 is a vision of the Lord on a throne and these angels are are flying around him. Check it out, Isaiah 6. And the angels, if you notice, cover their face and cover their feet. He's so holy that perfect angels have to hide themselves from him. He's not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. He's unimaginably, transcendently holy. That angels who's never sinned still got to go like this because he's so holy. And that is the person in human form on earth standing before Joshua saying, yes, you're right to worship me, but you don't even realize who you're standing before. I am God and I am holy. This is the role that the commander of the Lord's army is assuming. So we see then that the commander of the Lord's army is a man and the commander of the Lord's army is is God. The only logical, the only scriptural conclusion is that this person is none other than the pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which then leads to the second question. Why? Can I see scripturally Yeshua Jesus is here with the army, with Joshua, but, but why? I literally was asking myself this for weeks. Why? This pre-incarnate appearance before Bethlehem, I, it, it, it just, it's hard to wrap your mind around. And there's so many different things you could say about that, but I just want to offer you two reasons. 
why the commander of the Lord's army was here. Number one, to calibrate Joshua's heart. Jesus was here to calibrate Joshua's heart. Let me show you what I mean. Look at uh, Joshua's first question to the commander. He says this, are you for us or are you against us? Are you for us or are you against us? Sometimes my wife goes to Costco and she's like, do you want a hot dog or a pizza slice? You know what I say? Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's awesome. Costco's awesome. He does the opposite here. He says, are you for me or are you against me? And he says, no. He doesn't even, essentially doesn't even address the question. He just says, no. You're asking the wrong question, Joshua. Your question is horizontal. It's so beneath you, you're completely missing the point. He responds in verse 14, I indeed come now as captain of the Lord's army. This response by the Lord to Joshua is as if God's saying, Joshua, the question is not whether or not I'm with you. The question is whether or not are you with me? I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. You're asking the wrong questions, Joshua. What about you this morning? Perhaps you're asking the wrong questions about the circumstances in your life right now. Why is this happening to me? Why is he or she, when are they going to change for me? How long until the blessings come to me? Perhaps your questions without realizing are, are you're really just questioning to align Christ to me rather than me aligning myself to Christ. Perhaps we're posing the wrong questions. Adrian Rogers put it this way. If you want victory in your life, stop trying to get God on your side. Get on God's side. God hasn't come to take sides. He's come to take over. You will never know faith. You will never know victory. And your Jericho will never fall until you get on his side. And we see in our passage that Joshua gets on God's side. We see the calibration in his heart because then he asked this question in verse 14 after he's been spoken to by the commander saying, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Look what his next question is, his second question. He then says, what does my Lord to say to his servant? You see the change in question. His heart has been calibrated, has been changed. His posture is now, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I question. What do you have to say to me? It's it's as if Joshua essentially puts his mouth, his hand on his mouth and attunes his heart, saying, God, just speak to me. I will be quiet. His heart is calibrated here. The second question that Joshua asked the commander is a question we need to ask in every circumstance of life. Lord, what do you have to say to me? This circumstance I'm in is completely rocked to me, and I have no idea what's going on. What do you have to say to me? Show me what it is you're trying to teach me. So one reason the commander of the Lord's army was there was to calibrate Joshua's heart, but secondly, not only calibrate his heart, but to strengthen his heart. Um, In high school, it's kind of a, sometimes an emo high school kid, um, I used to overshare on Facebook and MySpace. Some of you guys don't even know what MySpace is. Um, 
<laughs> I used to overshare on there. And it's really, you know, like on Facebook, how you got memories that show up, and it's just terrible. Just don't look at those memories. You're just going to cringe at yourself. Um, and I remember I would overshare in these times about times that I would be depressed or I'd feel lonely, and people would comment on there and they'd say, sending positive vibes your way, bro. I'm sending you positive vibes. And I remember thinking to myself, what is that? <laughs> what in the world is that? I mean, I don't feel it. What do you mean positive vibes? It's one thing to say, I'm with you in theory. And it's another thing entirely to actually be with you in person. God promised Joshua in Joshua 1. You remember in Joshua 1? He says, I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will be with you wherever you go. And he kept his promise here. God wasn't with Joshua from the clouds. He was on the ground. And he was strengthening Joshua's heart. Can you imagine the amount of encouragement Joshua must have felt when he realized that the man who's standing before him is the man who called him to conquer Jericho and the man who's standing before him has his sword drawn and he's going to lead the battle and he's going to lead the way and he's going to make the way clear for Israel. He realized that the God Almighty who created the universe is standing before him and he is going to lead them. How encouraging that must have been. Joshua was not alone. He was not alone. And listen, none of us are called to conquer Jericho this morning. I don't... I don't think anyone in this room is called to conquer Jericho this morning. But everyone in this room at some point or another is going to be called of God to conquer something. Uh, for, I don't know what it is for you. It could be anxiety. It could be depression. It could be discouragement. It could be a thousand different things. It could be addiction. Whatever it is. I have no idea what you're going to face. There's, there's one thing that I know by the authority of Scripture that is true of you. You will not be alone. You will not be alone. It's so easy for us to look to the left and to the right and get entangled in all the anxieties of this world. Believer, it's one thing to put your hope in Christ for salvation. That is preeminent, and I hope and I pray that you all do. But it's another thing entirely, believer, to put your hope in Christ for your day-to-day -day life for your moment-to-moment -moment existence, for your moment-to-moment -moment strength. This is not just put your faith in Jesus and then just go on with your life. Jesus isn't just relevant when you die so you can get into heaven. Jesus is relevant every moment of every day. He's the unending source to tap into. He is, as the Psalm 1 says, a plant, you're a plant by streams of living water. When you come to Christ, you have every provision for every need. I'm trying to tell you, church, put your hope in Christ again afresh. What is it that has drawn your eyes away from him? What is it that is drawing your eye away from everything you've ever needed? Everything you've ever needed, everything you've ever wanted, everything you've ever desired, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2. All the pleasures of the world you could ever want, Psalm 16. Every pleasure, unending joy forevermore is in his presence. Jesus is here and he is for you and he is with you. You are not alone. I'm trying to tell you, church, put your hope in Christ. Christ is not only willing to help you, but he's able to help you. 
Listen, there's people that want to help you, but they don't have the ability to help you. That's not Jesus. He's not only willing to help you, he got the strength to do it. He got the power to do it. He's sovereign. He's faithful to his promises. He's a faithful God. If he said he's going to bring you through, he's going to bring you through. So in this season where God is preparing every one of us, every one of us is being prepared for something, whether you realize it or not. There's something you're going to have to conquer. There's something that is coming forward for you. There's three things for you. God is going to call you to consecration. God is going to call you to remember. And God is going to call you to son. Pray with me, please. Thank you so much, Lord, for this brief time to consider your word to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. I just pray that we would trust in you. Help us in these things that will come inevitably that are gonna shake us. Lord, that our faith would not fail and that we would see Jesus as more and more satisfying, as more and more worthy of everything we have in everything we are. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.